0: Welcome. I am Milena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirshhorn Museum. It is my pleasure to welcome you tonight for Me the Artist Talk with Barbara Kruger, who will be in conversation with Hirshhorn Assistant Curator Melissa Ha. Please note that tonight's presentation will be recorded for podcast on iTunes following the conversation between Barbara and Melissa, there'll be a Q&A period. If you choose to ask a question during that time, we ask you to please wait for a handheld microphone to be passed to you so that your question can be recorded. Also, please take a moment now to turn off your cell phones. And I also would like to remind you that there is no photography during this evening. I also would like to tell you that Bookstore will be opened after the program, so if you'd like to look or purchase some of our publications, you will be able to do so. A few words about upcoming programs. Our Friday Gallery Talks continue tomorrow with Michelle C. Wang, Georgetown University Assistant Professor of Art and Art History, who will discuss Ai Weiwei's colored vases and Coca-Cola vase. Groups meet at the information desk at the first floor lobby at 12.30. Friday Gallery Talks are also recorded for podcasts and are available to you on the Hirshhorn website. On January 17, Design Miami Designer of the Year 2012 and co-founder of the performance and video art movement, Vito aconche will be joining us for Meet the Artist. He will talk about his collaboration with Ai Weiwei and also about his own work. On February 7, assistant curator Mika Yoshitake and Freya Sackler assistant curator Carol Ha will give an evening tour of the exhibition Ai Wei According to What. These evening tours are absolutely fabulous, relaxing, and an opportunity to ask many questions. On February 17, we will present a marathon of film screenings. By and about Iwayway, including fairy tales, so sorry and without fear or favor, the marathon will last from 10:30 to 4:30. Now, a few acknowledgments. I'd like to thank especially Kerry Brower, chief curator and deputy director of the Heron, for his continued support of our public programs. Also, assistant curator Melissa Ha, Caroline Elliott, Manager of Adult Programs, and Time-Based Media Coordinator Sarah Gordon for their invaluable effort behind this evening's program. I also would like to thank on behalf of the Hirshhorn, the sponsor of the exhibition installation, Barbara Kruger, Belief plus Doubt, and they are 3 M, Robert Mnuchin, and the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. Now let me go to artist introduction. Of course, Barbara doesn't need an introduction, but it's a pleasure to do it because she's so, such an amazing artist. So let's, let me do that. Born in Newark, New Jersey, Barbara Kruger briefly attended Syracuse University and Parsons School of Design before leaving school to work in Conde Nast Publications as an editorial designer. Over time, she worked as a graphic designer, art director, and picture editor at the art departments of Mademoiselle, House and Garden, and Aperture, and created magazine layouts, book jacket designs, and performed freelance picture editing. In the late 1970s, she began making art using pictures and words. Her early photo collages, implementing her graphic design techniques, inaugurated the artist's ongoing political, social, and feminist provocations and commentaries on religion, sex, racial and gender stereotypes, consumerism, corporate greed, and power. Barbara's signature style, using black and white photographic images juxtaposed with pithy text, directly addresses the viewer and implicates us in the struggle for power and control. Kruger has completed numerous public projects around the world, including billboards, posters, bus wraps, and architectural collaborations. Since the nineteen nineties, Kruger has created video and audio installation as well as massive room wraps using printed vinyl, as you see in the Hirschhorn installation Believe Plus Doubt. Barbara has indeed an extensive exhibition record. Her work has been subject of solar exhibitions at Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles and the Whitney Museum of American Art, New York, Institute of Contemporary Art London. In addition, she has had large scale installation at the Schirin Kunsthalle Frankfurt and the Pinnacothek Munich. In 2005, she received the Golden Lion for lifetime achievement at the 51st Venice Biennale. Among other upcoming projects, she is preparing for one-person exhibition at the Kunsthaus Bregenz, Austria, in October 2013. I am indeed thrilled to present Barbara Kruger tonight for this Meet the Artist program, and Barbara will be in conversation with Hirschhorn's assistant curator, Melissa Ha. So let me tell you just a few words about Melissa. She was trained as art historian and artist and has degrees in art history from Princeton University and the University of Pennsylvania. She did graduate work in fine arts at Cambridge, uh, sorry, Carnegie Mellon University and has held positions at the Museum of Modern Art, New York, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Fogg Museum in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In addition, she has contributed to numerous catalog entries, essays and reviews to exhibition catalogs and magazines, and has taught studio art and art history at Tyler School of Art and the Corcoran College of Art and Design. At the Hirschhorn, she co-organized with assistant curator Mika Yoshitake Dark Matters, selections from the collection, and is curating the upcoming exhibition, Equivalence, Copies, Fakes, and Dupes. She has been the curator responsible for the major installation, Belief plus Doubt, initiated by Hirschhorn's director, Richard Koshalek, as one of our recent public art interventions. Please help me to welcome Barbara. Kruger and Melissa.
1: Hello? Thank you, Melena. Well, it's truly an honor and a pleasure to have Barbara Kruger here with us tonight, as it is to have her work, Belief Plus Doubt on Long Term View, here at the Hirshhorn, I'm guessing that everyone in the audience has seen Belief plus Doubt. It's not far from where we're sitting right now, but I'll put an image of it on the screen. And Barbara, I thought we might start by talking about this work. You've do, done a number of these large so-called room wraps in different architectural settings recently. Could you speak a little bit about this site at the Hirschhorn in particular and your, how you approached it formally and also thematically?
2: Well, I would begin by saying I am so fortunate and pleased to have been invited to do this project here. It means a lot to me. Um, I think that the fact that it's here in Washington um, has a particular resonance. The chance to address issues that I've been thinking about and working around for so many decades um, to bring it to the Capitol is of particular um, charge for me interest for me. And um, I love working with space and architecture. I love this building. It's amazing. And to be able to engage this lobby space for an extended period of time is um, its more than a pleasure. It's, it, it's an honor to be able to do that and to engage these issues in this space at this time.
1: So the context of Washington, D.C., and perhaps the National Mall was important to your thinking about what text to use, perhaps, in Um, placement?
2: To a certain degree. I mean, obviously, we all have our internal narratives that we uh, think about and ruminate about, and these have been phrases and ideas that I have used before, but in this particular combination, not. And the chance to do it here, it's also the first time uh, it's always a thrill to be able to engage a space that offers an aerial view that you can look down upon. So uh, that, to me, was a real opportunity. Also to use the, um, the verticality and um, the, the bias, shall we say, that the escalators offer was a terrific chance to sort of extend my visual repertoire because I hadn't dealt with that particular configuration. It sounds very formal, but it's something that you really do think of when you're engaging a space, how to visualize and spatialize your ideas.
1: Well, it's important talking about this space because it's not a straightforward gallery space. It's also not a simple orthogonal um, Mm -hmm. cube. It has, as you say, the crisscrossing escalators. And it's also, importantly, I think, multi-purpose. It's... um, It... It's where our store is now, and it's also leading to sort of places of everyday function like bathrooms, and it's leading to places like galleries. And I right. I think it, you've managed to brilliantly address all those different Well, functions. I just
2: really like the centrality of the space in regards to the other galleries. And... Um let's face it, commerce is something that takes place everywhere including at cultural institutions and to be able to meet people's eyes with your text and, and your visuals is a, is a terrific opportunity. Also brings up some contradictions um, of which life is rife with. So it's a chance to sort of um, address them on site in the most literal way. You know?
1: I'd like to ask you, um, A little bit about your artistic beginnings. I think many people are aware that you had an early career as an editorial designer for Condé Nast, and you clearly um, excelled at that, to a degree, because you, from what I've read, were promoted very quickly. You were head designer at Mademoiselle magazine by the age of 22. And yet you only did it for a short time. So I wonder if you could talk about why you turned away from design as a profession and how you came to define yourself instead as an artist. Yeah.
2: I really didn't raise, raise up in the ranks like that, rise up in the ranks. I mean, basically, you work for Condé Nast. And you, most of the people who worked there could have afforded to pay them to work there because it was a, a low-paying job. But Conde Nast had a very important place um, in the history of uh, women's vocational hiring. Uh, earlier on in the century, in the 20th century, you know, women would go to college in seven-sister schools and they get out, and nobody would hire them. You know, and all of a sudden there were these women's magazines that actually did engage. Them as editors. Of course, they were basically very defined by race and class, you know, but they did hire wealthy women from college educated, you know, um, backgrounds uh, and paid them very little. So for me, who was just not any of those things, you know, have no college education, no degrees, undergraduate or graduate, and came from Newark, and uh, really was dependent on a salary. It wasn't exactly the greatest support system in the world. (laughs) And um, and also, I wasn't really trained as a designer, um, nor could I really um, be a designer. Uh, I saw that soon afterwards, that, To me, the incredible gift and creativity of being a designer um, is to be able to supply incredibly varied renditions of someone else's image of perfection. It was a problem-solving sort of assignment um, assigned by someone else, and you had to do something to fulfill a contract for them. And I could not do that. And I didn't have to do that as an editorial designer. I never worked in advertising. Mm -hmm. Editorial design is about turning pages. It's about seriality. It's about working with someone else's photograph and putting a text on it. Mm -hmm. At that time, the text, we worked with dummy type. You know, it frequently said, you know, the sweater will make you lovely and, you know, sought after whatever. And I sort of, after a few Years began to understand that my job as a designer could morph into my work as an artist with very substantial substitutional elements, in that I wrote the text.
1: So you became your own client? Yeah. As a designer? That's the only
2: way it could have possibly worked. I couldn't, and yet I have tremendous respect for designers I think that their engagement in so-called creativity so excels in terms of visual repertoires um, what most artists have to do who just have to suit themselves you know in a certain way that artists in general have a much less profuse repertoire than a designer would have to have
1: having to be adaptable yes yeah I was really fascinated to learn relatively recently that uh, some of your earliest work, and I'm thinking here of pieces that you made in the early 1970s, were very um, heavily involving handwork. They involved processes like sewing and crocheting. Again, this was something you only did for a short time. And I just was curious to ask you, why was that kind of art practice ultimately not satisfying yeah. for you? good question.
2: Well, you know, because I didn't really go to school, I consider that student work on a certain level. You know, I never really had a peer group that I sort of uh, spent four or five years with and was never professionalized as an artist, which is something that happens all the time today. Um, And I just... What I had to try to do is try to figure out what it meant to call myself an artist. What does that mean? You know, I didn't grow up in an environment where, you know, we talked about art all the time or went to museums or anything. Um, So when I first started, well, I looked at fashion illustration. I did that. And what is that? I didn't figure that out. And then the art world at the time, with a few exceptions, was like 12 white guys. Sorry if there are any... Not to offend any any of you, uh, but nevertheless, it was a much, much smaller subculture, um, and women were rather marginalized as people of color were and uh, and still are and um, my, my entry into it, I just didn't know what. So I started doing like crafty stuff and, you know, would knit and crochet and do stuff. And after a while, I, I started to think that you know this was a better career for the woman up the block because I felt that I was tranquilizing myself, that there was something in the labor-intensive repetition of it, which um, historically had been productive for women on a certain level, but not for what I wanted to do. I also at the same time started writing and doing poetry stuff and Patti Smith was a very early influence early you know uh and I tried to have to figure out a way to sort of join my writing with my visuality and it was only much later that I could say yeah I have developed this fluency at Condé Nast and I'm going to use that in my work
1: you know. This reminds me of something I w- once read your saying, and I'll paraphr- paraphrase, that you wanted to figure out how to bring the world into your work. Mm-hmm. And I think that quote is so interesting because I don't think that's a goal that all artists share.
2: Mm-hmm. Nor should they have to, you right. know? I think that, I should say, I think there are a million ways of making work and I would never campaign for a correct way of working. I think that, making art, whether it's visual art or music or writing novels or any kind of essay or making movies is the creation of a kind of commentary. And there are lots of different ways to do it. And just the act of creating commentary, creating a secondary model aside from a primary experience is itself an act, a willful act of some sort. So I don't think that there's a way that you make so-called political art, which I don't think I do. You know, I have real problems with categorizing things. So I think that there are a lot of different ways of, of making work. And a lot of artists who might not say that they're doing that are, in fact, you know, who are bringing the world into their work, do it in different ways. In, in say, very sometimes very full-on ways, sometimes very subtle, oblique ways. You know,
1: well, you mentioned that for you, the way you found was turn into some of the uh, skills and s- strategies that you had developed as an editorial designer. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to put up some of the um, some of your work from the early '80s. These are photo collages, mm-hmm. and I
2: well, they're actually they were made as paste-ups, and then I blew them up photographically. So there's no collage on the surface.
1: So I'll just show the audience. This is an image of the actual, an original paste-up, right? Yeah,
2: this is one of the few that actually had a board where I wrote on it. Most of uh-huh. them, they just, I just did paste-ups like I did at the magazine and decided to blow them up and make them larger, which is what separated from what most photographic practice was at the time.
1: So this is small-scale, but then photographed and made large, by. Vib- Either silkscreen or blowing up a very large yeah. photographic print. But by the time I got to this work, I was dealing with vinyl and not paper. Yeah. 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 In an interview that was, I think, from the '80s, so relatively early on, I, I read that you emphasized it was important to you that the photocolages be objects, that they existed as objects, and that's why you put frames around them. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, it was at a time I think around
2: 1980. Three, 82, 83, 84 when for the first time I'm guessing it was, my, it was my experience that for the first time young artists were beginning to sell their work You know, while they were young, while they were still sentient, they were actually making money. And um, so you were entering the marketplace on, on a certain level. And I must say that these works in secondary market are astronomical right now. I made $50 on each one of these, you know. So, just so you know, I made the work, I made the print, I have nothing to do with that escalation of insanity that, you know, but nevertheless. Um, But... I started to think these are not two of the works I'm talking about, but there was at a point when you begin to enter the marketplace and you're trying to do work which is resistant on a certain level. And when I would talk about the work or speak about it, I always use a quote from Walter Benjamin that I really loved. And he said, if the soul of the commodity existed, it would want to nestle in the hearth and home of every buyer that passed its way. So I did a series of works that said things like, buy me, I'll change your life, put your money where your mouth is, you are getting what you paid for, you know, and in that way you could address the viewer, because my work was always about direct address on a certain level.
1: The strategy of direct address goes beyond the photo collages. Mm -hmm. I I think that's also true of the installations and the videos that we'll get to a little bit later. but. Um, first to talk about the shift from making discrete objects to making environments. I think this is the first instance where you did a really room-sized yeah. installation. The Mary Boone show in '91.
2: 1991. It was the first time. Um, Architecture is my first love, and the chance to engage space in this way was so thrilling to me. And um, it's expensive to do this kind of work uh and at Especially this time then, right? yes this was pre digital this was all silk screen and each wall was an incredible amount of money as wallpaper there was nothing for sale on this show i think later on i did works that and it was the first time i had ever done a floor and this floor is actually adhesive tape painted on by the time the show was over it looked like a meat grinder had been in there you know <laughs> it wasn't there was no digital printing it was very very different yeah. so that was the first First big install in 91, and then the next one. Um which was 94. And this was the first... The gallery had this incredibly expensive limestone floors, and I covered it with linoleum (laughs) and put these um, magnesium plates in the floor. And this is the first installation I ever did that has an audio track to it.
1: Yeah, could you describe that soundtrack?
2: It was a sort of conflation of sports arena sounds and and religious gatherings and a lot of laughter, a little bit of other sounds. uh, And... um, it really um, had the feeling of a rally or an, a rally in a nut house or something, but you know look like us, pray, pray like us, think like us, hate like us, speak like us, love like us. This was the sort of text, text of the work and and the uh, floors. The the magnesium panels had text also, and the one when you first came in, it just said, how dare you not be me. Right. So again, all these contestations about difference and power and otherness.
1: And soon enough, you're doing work that involves moving image. Um, that was
2: 1997. And these texts were... Oh, this was an incredibly complicated installation. This was, again, not on video. These were... 110 texts that were on slide projections so the room was like full of this noise it it was you know just at the cusp when things were changing in the back there are three 12 foot tunnels each has a different um video in it playing again those are the,
1: the talking head yeah that we're looking toward but
2: you couldn't see them when you were in when you were in the tunnel. All you could hear were them speaking. And then you'd get outside and there'd be this babble of, of sound.
1: So is it very different the way you approach writing text that's going to be performed and then heard versus text that you're going to be reading?
2: Oh, very different. Because all these time-based works, which you'll see more of in the video, it's a whole different thing. It's about script writing. And it's about some degree of quasi or splintered narrativity. But it's really about writing a script and writing dialogue,
1: for sure. And getting back to um, where we started with direct address, was that something that you'd always wanted to use in its oral form? I mean, you'd already been using it as Mm. these texts with the first and third pronouns. Yeah. But had you always been thinking to bring it into a spoken form?
2: Oh yeah, I did want to do that. I mean... For many years, I'd written for Art Forum, and I wrote about movies and television, not about art stuff, because I felt I knew more about that stuff. And um, it's not to say that I'm working on the same level of narrativity as a feature because I'm not. It's not a feature film. And many more artists have become engaged with doing installations that are video-based. In the past 20 years, 15 years, the dark room has become this, you know, incredible sort of baseline for for, for so much work.
1: Yeah. And it also seems that bodily engagement is a big part of both the video installations and the room wraps. For instance, in um, this... Okay, yeah. 12, where the viewers sort of put in the crossfire of these conversations that are happening between two and four speakers, in the same way that we're sort of caught in the crossfire of all of this text yeah. in a room wrap. Do you think a lot about how oh, yeah. the body is activated through your installations? Absolutely.
2: Especially in these video works, which are four... This is a four-channel video. And you're literally in between the conversations that these people are having. And there are also different effects going on, like a spinning and... Uh, and the use of, of audio, which I actually got to in that first installation um, when I talked about audio. That first started happening and the video first started. I did a bunch of um, PSAs for MTV, oh. part of Silence the Violence. Oh. And that was some of the first video that I had done. Soon after, I did a bunch of PSA, PSAs at the Wexner Center where I actually made that work. Um, my very first videos um, the ones at Deitch Projects with the text were actually made at the Wexner Center also. One of the few institutions where artists can actually make work there. That work was done there. But, um, yeah, back in, in this, there's a kind of enveloping need and where you place the seats is important. There's a big bench in the middle, but also benches in the corner. So you can be in the middle, but you can also look at it from the side.
1: And can you tell the audience a little bit more about the kinds of conversations that are staged here?
2: That's hard to do. Yeah. It's, really, it's really hard to explain. But I, I, my text and my writing has always been much about vernacular speech. And since I always say that my work tries to be how we are to one another, it it sort of encompasses both conversational vernacular, familiarity, love, hate, suspicion sarcasm, flirtation.
1: And it also seems to be about what's spoken and what's not spoken Mm -hmm. because there's speech happening between these characters which are scripted. And And then then there's
2: a running text underneath which also has a relationship to that. And I remember uh, right before I was doing this, also um, this piece is 2004, I think, um, that... All the news but all the um, the crawls on CNN I, yeah. became not only singular but double and triple, so in some of this video you will see three levels
1: they stack of, up
2: of text plus them talking at you, you know. so
1: what is it like for you working with actors and I asked both because. It struck me when we started communicating how you're really a one-woman show. Like there's no big apparatus of studio assistants. I don't and, have
2: five people <laughs> speaking to more no, people. you're
1: really emailing and calling Barbara Kruger. Yeah, so there's that. that. <laughs> and then so I thought about with your moving image work how you, you're working with actors. You're working presumably with at least some kind of small production, I, maybe post-production. Yes, I work
2: with a, a great, um, great DP, Sam Kate who Diana Theater had told me about and um, who's now a director. Um, He does uh, commercials and different ad campaigns. But um, I met Sam out in L.A., and we started working together. And uh, this took auditions and just scheduling auditions. And one thing, you know, in L.A., there's no shortage of people wanting acting jobs, even if it's something as peripheral to their wanting to be movie stars as this, you know. (laughs) Although some of these people really pop up set McDonald's commercial that's running right now. <laughs> you know. So I mean but there's but there's always that and to me it's like so brutal and so hard to be an actor. It's just, you know, and I had to learn the etiquette of saying thank you, you know, because people I mean, there there's no displacement onto an object. It's just their bodies and their ego and it's like oh my gosh. How do you tell them you are not
1: the one, you know? And how is it for you as a a writer having your um, your writing interpreted? Because they are obviously adding something that you might not have been able to predict.
2: Yeah, well, when they add too much that I'm not predicting, they're usually not in there. I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sometimes sometimes they add something really good, but it's amazing how sometimes, like, Sam and I would just have to stifle ourselves because it was like somebody... It was like from Planet Debbie. It's like, oh, my God, what am I hearing? You know, but whatever.
1: Um, you, men- you mentioned earlier your column that you wrote for Art Forum, Remote Control, which you wrote for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And um, as you mentioned, they're mostly essays on... Uh, movies and television, and I was looking back at some of the, your essays on television, in particular, from the mostly from the late '80s. And there is a really brilliant body of work. They're so incisive, often hilarious. Thank you. Um, and and also had the effect of just you know all the programs that you reference and the events that you reference. It really Took me back to that moment, that historical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Entertainment Tonight, Iran-Contra, um, moonlighting, mm-hmm. and it got me really wishing that there was still a Barbara Kruger column on television to read. And so much has changed in television since, of course, the early '90s—the mm-hmm. rise of reality television mm-hmm. and proliferation of cable channels—and you know, many people today. Talk about us living in a golden age of television drama, and I just—I know you still consume television. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you have any observations or um, reflections on what's going on right now in well, TV. Well,
2: observation is how few of my students watch television.
1: In the—you mean in terms of broadcast television, Younger or people.
2: no? They don't watch TV much. Not much even on the computer. Uh, no, they watch some reality TV if they cop to it, but not that much.
1: Not that much. Uh, but uh, Yeah, it's no longer the era that everybody's watching the same... Whatever. Well, like, think
2: of what young people you saw. You know, MTV, you know, it's different now. It's all reality TV. It's not about music videos. And you can do that online. You don't have to do that. And, you know, I mean, yeah, they can watch Sober House or something on VH1 or whatever. But um, it's, it's sort of different. But television is still um, a very... Directive and prevalent medium, but with computers and devices that we all have, it it has changed to a certain degree, for sure. But I I do watch stuff today and think, wow, you know, sure, you could write something on it, but I don't know if I would, you know, just
1: whatever. (laughs) Let's get back to some of your own work. Okay. Um, I have an array of.
2: Can we just go to the one other? Oh, sorry, yeah. uh, The green. um, The
1: most recent. Yeah.
2: Well, that's one view. Yeah, that's the last video I did, um, The Globe Shrinks. And that is a four-channel video, but there's only two images shown here. And then in this next one, there was actually um, The Room Goes Dark for a While, and uh, it's just this uh, sort of scrolling text that you just... Uh, and
1: this this work, The Globe Shrinks, um, is interesting because... It uses not just um, actors who are performing your words mm-hmm. and then the, the text to be read, but there's also some found footage in the piece, Yeah, there's too. found
2: footage, which I'd never used before in, in video. Um, Melissa and I have had this talk about my relationship to photography and to me are the problematics about what it means to point a camera at another person. There used to be a discourse people used to talk about called representation and what that means. I worked at Condé Nast for many years, and I do think that there is some responsibility in what it means to point a camera at another person. However, we live in a different time where the way people experience the world. It's almost impossible for people to allow themselves to do that without doing it through a lens or being on the other side of the camera. That's important for people. So, you know, things have changed. There's either narcissism or voyeurism. Take your pick. It's hard to find something in between. A
1: potent mix of the two.
2: Right. But I think that for much of photography, including documentary photography, that is very problematic genre for me. Um, photojournalism, very problematic genre for me. Um, that, uh, that somehow when I have actors in my film, I, I hire them and I pay them and they're actors. I'm not capturing them and objectifying them.
1: You've done really a vast array of outdoor public projects and these have ranged from billboards. Um, this is on the Spectracolor board in Times Square mm. in 83. Uh, posters, simply wheat pasted. And what struck me, um, sort of running through these various projects is, you know, some of them were made, some of them were done wholly just on your own initiative. Some of them were made possible by galleries or Public art fund. Public Public art art fund. Yeah. Um, Some of them are commissioned by groups sort of explicitly more for advocacy purposes, such as um, this instance. And yet there's a total fluidity between all the projects. There's not this sense of sometimes you have a sense that, oh, this this one was a work by assignment or by on commission, Mm -hmm. and this is a work that you feel like the artist did herself. Does it make a difference to you how these things come about?
2: Well, you know, when I was first starting, I wanted to do something in the subways or do something. I didn't have the money. I didn't know anything. And I called up just to do billboards or busking, and people said, what are you selling? It's like the idea that you would want to do an image that addressed an idea or a situation or a context was just not. But this was very early on, you know. So, I mean, things have changed a bit since then. And I've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity people know my name and my work. I've said this before. I never thought that was going to happen. I absolutely never thought that I would have a career and that people would know me or my work or my name. And um, I feel like I have been so fortunate and that so much of the work that you see and that becomes visible is always a confluence of hard work and insistence, sometimes even good work, uh, fortuitous social relations, that brutality that is networking, um, and um, historical circumstances.
1: And what were the historical circumstances that made... That you think made your career possible?
2: Um, I think clearly um, what happened uh, in sort of the years between, like... I don't like to decade dies, so I never use decades. I think it's a sloppy way of thinking and writing and curating, okay? Um, I think that what happened uh, was that... uh, there were a group of artists, um, all of whom sort of grew up with television and movies and computers and um, photography, and began to make work which was a reflection of that experience. We, I think, we were the first generation—a group of people who could be called a curatorial generation, who collected stuff—and
1: who are some of the other artists you're thinking of?
2: You know, we, we, we took stuff together and we started making work with that. And my colleagues at the time, you know, uh, were Cindy Sherman and Jenny Holzer and Richard Prince and Sherry Levine and um, and even some painters involved like David Sally also uh, and uh, Louise Lawler, Sarah Charlesworth, um, Lorna Simpson a bit later, uh, you know, who just people who just grew up with, with these technologies. And um, we didn't start using the word appropriation. That was never a word I would use. But yet it was used, you know. And yet you could also extend that in, into hip-hop, you know, and into sampling and into what that meant, to take from a culture that existed and to reuse, to repurpose. I mean, we'd seen a, a brutal attack on that, through copyright law, I'm again, I believe in copyright, but I believe that it has sort of morphed into intellectual property as a euphemism for corporate control in so many ways, you know. So, um, so what you saw is that people could only use one beat, you know, you couldn't use, you couldn't sample too much, you couldn't, you know, but that's a reflection of the culture that we live in. And I think that my work and my colleagues' work and the music we were listening to um, were a reflection of that to a certain degree. And because we were some of the first artists who we began to sell our work, we were still pretty young, even, even for a pittance, it's, nevertheless, it's, it started yeah. happening. So um, I think that that was a huge change. And for us, for some of us as women, this was a real first, yeah. to have women enter the marketplace, to do work that was not... Mar- that it was just... It just so happened that for a while there, some of the work that was becoming the most prevalent, what people were talking about that had entered the discourse, happened to be done mostly by women and Richard. (laughs) And I think that that was something that was really a change from what had happened earlier. That we weren't marginalized in that same way.
1: included in the marketplace and not just...
2: Yeah, and weren't marginalized in a way that we would only show in shows that showed women. You know, that our work had entered, that that my male colleagues were supportive of my work. It was not a battle of the sexes. Things had changed. In Europe, it hadn't changed in the same way. It doesn't mean that things had equalized, but things change incrementally sometimes rather than that univocal revolutionary narrative, you know, that romantic revolutionary narrative. I'm not a romantic. Um, Things change incrementally in certain ways. So the culture we live in, the room we're sitting in, the person who's the president of this country, right?
1: That couldn't have happened 20 years ago, you know? Um, You mentioned uh, your... Group of peers, your generation of artists is, you, you know, using these techniques of repurposing and collecting and repurposing, and you, your aesthetic and as well as your your voice, I think, has been incredibly influential and is out there being repurposed by lots and lots of people. You seem to not have a, at all, a problem with this.
2: No. Because I never thought anyone would know my work, and it's such a hoot. And, and again, maybe we can show that yeah. picture of, uh, well, do you want to get to that later or jump to that? Oh, yeah, let's show that Yeah, wherever it is. About uh, a year ago, I was in an exhibition at the uh, Kunsthaus Bregenz, where I'm going to be doing a... A show and there was a large wall this exhibition was called in english that 's the way we do it and it was an appropriation so so called and um, so I decided there was a two hundred foot long wall and uh, what I did is I went online and I found five hundred and fifty images on flickr and now Instagram or uh, on Google images of people who'd done work in the style of my older work and stuff and because they were thumbnails I couldn't expand it over a 200 foot wall so I took like five images of the hand that holds I shop there for I am and each one got about a hundred of these pictures that by the way are all copyright on their sites where I find them. (laughs) And um, and so the whole wall was just, that was my country, none of it is my own work. And I'm, what, you know, what am I, you know, it's ridiculous to try to, I, I believe in uh, in the Creative Commons and Lawrence Lessig, Lawrence Lessig an important voice in um, the discourse around copyright.
1: And, uh, you know. I wanted to show a couple of magazine covers because in. Um, The last couple decades, you've had a chance to sort of return Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally to this format that you were born from. Right. Um, We sometimes see your work on the editorial page of the New York Times, and these are other uh, instances. How is it... It struck me in the the Spitzer and then also the Howard Stern. How is it different using photographs of known people, celebrities?
2: Well, uh, the Spitzer thing became quite an issue, but... um, (laughs) Well, you know, I felt really badly about that. New York Magazine called me, and it was when that was going on. And um, I admire Spitzer. I, I think he really tried to change Wall Street in a productive way, but, you know, uh, these guys sometimes, (laughs) you know, what can you say? I mean, it's just sort of miraculous what's going on in there, but uh, he, it was so, it was so self-destructive, you know, Uh, and you knew that all these guys on Wall Street were so happy when all this happened, you know, that they didn't have to deal with him anymore, and um, so New York Magazine asked me to do it, and I was happy with it, but I felt badly because I didn't you know, I didn't want that to happen to him. You know, I think that he is a smart guy who is doing good, critical, vigilant work around the way capital is threaded through this culture. And it's really unfortunate, you know. Um, The first cover the Newsweek... whose values, they called me up and, oh, this was 92 and and they wanted to do a thing about values and it was like, you know, the discourse of the right is a discourse of so-called values at the time and I said, I don't want to do values I don't want to buy into that I don't want to buy into that discourse whose values, so they said, okay, so why don't you do whose values, so that's what I did The Stern thing was different because I had written a friend of mine had been an editor at Esquire at the time and he knew that I listened to Howard. And so he asked me to write about Howard Stern. And there was no cover or anything involved at all. And then when I wrote the article, he said, why don't you do the cover? So, and this was 1992, and there had never been I mean, He never had had a cover. And in the inside, the image says, I love myself and you hate me for it. You know? And um, so I, I did this, and I was so nervous in the morning listening. Oh, my God, what is he going to say? So he's reading it, and at first it, it sounds like it's good, and he's very happy with Robin, and then it gets really bad, and then he's going, oh, no, what is she, you know. And I, but he was most pissed about He hated the way his hair looked in this,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that it looked too poofy, or, you know, it, it shouldn't look right. But I have to say in rereading that article, he has changed so. Yes. That there was so, he was uh, so much more and radio racist. radio has changed mo- a lot. more racist and homophobic. It's like 15 years of being, going to a shrink later, 20 years later, and he's a different person. But,
1: you know, I still listen every morning. One thing from that Stern essay that struck me, because, of course, well, I say of course, but of course I actually think that comedy is the great under-discussed thing in art. Mm -hmm. And your work is so often very funny, and that's part of its power. Um, And in your essay on Howard Stern, and I'll just read a a brief quote from it, because I thought it was really interesting. I wanted to ask you about how humor is used in your work and Mm -hmm. in others'. Um, You wrote, Stern is funny, really funny, and that's where things get complicated because funny can cut at least two ways. What makes us laugh are not just the ironic musings of an examined life, but also the fascinating arrogance of stupidity. Stern's gift or curse is his ability to deliver an abundance of both. That's sort of the dichotomy maybe between the inside cover and the outside cover too. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I I think that... um Comedy, laughter, is a, is a really vital and powerful critical form. Um, satire has always functioned that way, both textually and visually. You know, you watch SNL, you see things online all the time, you know, you know what a, a brutal device it can be. And it really has no ideological allegiances either, right. you know. Right. So it can be very free-floating and cruel.
1: I think maybe now's the time to open up the conversation to those of you in the audience. Oh,
2: can we oh. just show yeah, some sorry. of the... I did want to show the Sharon Constella to get an idea... Oh, yeah. ...of how, just to give you an idea of working with, with architecture and the scale. Um, this is in German. I just want you to get a, just a peek of this, which is just, um, was uh, thrilling
1: to... And this to is a project do. that you did last year, yeah. I believe, and this is at the... Filling the rotunda at the um, Schirn Kunsthalle in Frankfurt. Uh, yeah. Can I ask you something about working actually in another language? Mm-hmm. Because you're obviously somebody who cares so much about particular words right. and writing, and you're a careful editor. How is it for you working in translation?
2: Oh, it's so important to get the right translation. And my speech is vernacular, so we work on getting the right translation or else... It's ridiculous. This, I would have done it all in German, but they wanted German and English. Mm-hmm. At the Stadlick, it's mostly in Dutch, but there's a little bit of English there too.
1: And some of the the words are actually. That's the is largest another.
2: thing I've ever done. That's at the Kaufhof department store in Frankfurt. Um, really large scale.
1: Is the reaction to the the work different in? Other countries? Not really. This, I believe, when was this? 2008,
2: 2007?
1: 2002, I have.
2: 2002, okay, it was early on. Um, Not really. I mean, I wouldn't just bring a work to another. I'm very critical of artists who go to a place and just do a quick read of it and say, oh, you know, I'm going to do you, you know. But to me, this is about, if it's a consumer culture, if it's about uh, relations of gender and difference and race in certain places, especially in, in Europe, um, I think that there's a certain um, shared problematic, shall we say?
1: You know? And we should mention that that big... I have another image of it. Um, the one on the outside... Of
2: the Kaufhof, the Kaufhof, the biggest the department, department store. store chain in Germany. Yeah, Frankfurt was the only city where I could do these big projects. This is a project which is a collaboration between the Schönkunsthalle, um the Kaufhof department store, and the mayor of Frankfurt. I mean, it's just unbelievable that that would happen, you know. Yeah. so...
1: So now, shall we open up to questions? Hi. I'm a graphic designer, and I'm dying to know, do you ever distort the typeface to make it fit? Do you ever distort the typeface to make it fit? You (laughs) mean
2: stretch? You mean stretch it? Stretch it, yeah. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. (laughs)
2: Why? Why? What is the...
1: We don't like that. Yeah, I know.
2: (laughs) difference between you know I really do have to say that one of the things that artists can do is they take certain conventions and they tweak them you know and it doesn't mean it's better but it's like for me it's like what's the big deal let's stretch it you know but it doesn't make it look more beautiful necessarily but instrumentally it just works for me you know But it might not work for a designer's eye, for sure, so I respect that, you know.
0: Hi, you've talked about being
1: largely self-educated, and yet you use language, words.
0: Um, Did you have your own kind of reading program? In other words, how did you come to your connection to words, and also how did you uh, get acquainted with Walter Benjamin?
2: Well, that's a great question, really. Thank you. Um, Well, I was never much of a reader, and, you know, um, I think that, although I must say, when I was in school, I studied for a semester with Dan Arbus, which explains some of my aversion to pointing a camera at another person. But... She told me that I should write because I talk like Dorothy Parker. And I didn't know who Dorothy Parker was, you know, whatever. But uh, it was sort of interesting to hear that. But I think that when I came to New York, without, I was working at Condé Nast. I didn't know the art world. But the first group of artists that I met who became my peer group was the first first or second graduating class from CalArts. You know, so and, and they were the people. Plus, you know, so that was like David Sally and Ross Bleckner, and and then Tom Lawson, and um, and then Sarah Charlesworth, not Cal Arts, Cindy, you know, um, Sherry, Jenny, you know, that that became our peer group. But we didn't go to school together, most of us. But what would happen was that. <clears throat> We were reading. We began reading. And at that time, Benjamin had just been translated. And uh, I read Walter Benjamin, and that was really important to me. Not German tragic drama or any of that stuff, but his Moscow Diaries and and, and, the, um, and uh, um, Illuminations. In Moscow Diaries, you learn that he was a compulsive shopper. <laughs> you know, which most people wouldn't have known. And I also discovered Roland Bart, who was amazingly influential on me. And when I was writing, when I started writing, I was influenced by people like Jay, Cober, uh, Jay Hoberman, who wrote for The Voice, Alex Coburn. Um, and I would always read Roland Bart before I started to write something mm-hmm. for style. For, for just knowledge and style, pure pleasure. He was writing for newspapers. He was writing for the, full, for, like Benjamin wrote for foulatons, even, you know, that there was a journalistic spin to the writing. So I discovered that. And then, then I discovered um, just writings like um, Gay- Gayatri Spivak was really important to me. And, and I read Edward Said and, and Cornell West and organized some things at Dia. Of conferences on race and representation, journalism, and the legislation of the law, what Saeed took part in, and, and Cornell. And, and that was a really, I'm an autodidact because I just didn't have that college education, you know. So that's how. Hi.
0: How has
1: the kind of rise of computers and other digital technologies kind of changed the way that you've produced your work? Or has it changed the way that you look at your work? as well:
2: Well, it definitely changed the way I produce my work digitally, um, because when I was making silk screens, I started doing silk screens on vinyl, and they were so expensive. It <clears throat> cost10,000 dollars to make one. You know It was ridiculous, and I just couldn't do that, you know. Digitally, things are much cheaper, but I stopped making vinyl works for four years because the quality just sucked. It just wasn't good enough, and and then as the Epson developed and these machines developed, and I started working digitally, I stopped doing paste ups, obviously, you know, and and that changed the work. I didn't shoot in Super 8; I shot in 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 video. I, I shot digitally, you know. I didn't edit on a Steam Beck. I you know did it otherwise, either Final cut or you know any other way we could do it so of course that's changed in terms of the actual look and read of the work I really make no claims for myself except I very seldom get lost physically and I have a short attention span so with the exception of my time based work I basically make work that really reaches out and touches someone pretty quickly you know so I relate to this sort of Twitter stuff and, and the, uh, short attention span theater stuff you know in um, that way I just think and also the work is sort of very reproducible photographically and digitally so it plays online really easily I don't have to take the pictures because someone else is doing it
3: hmm. I was wondering if you could comment on the uh, choice of fonts or font in your work uh, that shows up
2: what? What's the comment?
3: Oh, I was, I was wondering if you could comment on the choice of font. In oh, the your choice work. of
2: font. I do want to say that to me, there are some times when I'll stretch something and it is way too distorted and I will <laughs> change fonts. Like, you know, I, I, I use Helvetica Ultra Compressed a lot. If that's not good, I'll go to something else. You know, I'll use Helvetica Black or Futura. You know, whatever. You know, there are things that look too grotesque. If I don't want it to be a cartoon, it's just not going to roll with me. But, you know, in terms of choice of fonts, I have no, you know, when I worked at Conde Nast, I like using sans serif type. You know, I I really... Because architecture is my first love, you know, and I don't use categories, but there is a period of, of modernism, certainly in architecture, which is really so important to me, and sans serif type is part of that, and I just got back from Europe, and, you know, as soon as you fly into Vienna or Amsterdam, it's sans serif land, you know? You get on the highway, it is all there, the history of type, and, you know, you get here and it's like, whoa... <laughs> you know so someone who thinks about that you know yeah I just like sans serif type although I did a number of books uh, of two um, which were picture and textbooks where I used century school book I'm not using dom casual or anything like that
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm not that distorting You yeah, know, what I,
3: <laughs> having uh, lived in the New York area same time you did, we're the same age, and working for a design firm and, you know, tried to get over to uh, something else like fine art. But uh, coming into the Hirsch one, going up the escalator, reminded me of going to work from Grand Central up the escalators, face-to-face with the Joseph Albers red, black, and white mural that was there every day for years. So uh, here you are doing what I do now, using type exclusively. And, of course, here you have just that. But you added the word comedy. And when I was in Cambridge, Mass., in the 70s, I was with a group at MIT who are very straight. And they, I had a one-man show in Harvard Square. One of the associates came to see my show, which is all funny. He came up to me and said, Do you do any serious art? And I said, it's all serious. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, no, you know, I mean, what, like squares, circles? And this is one of the problems that I've had in fine art. The comedy aspect of it, to some people, isn't taken as serious. And when it's typography, it's not art, it's design. And this is a huge hurdle to get over to have the community of fine art accept it. How did you bridge this gap? Did you ease into it? Or was it one day you say, this is it, I'm me? Because as artists, when asked, how do you think the the public will react to this? The good artists say, I don't care what they think.
2: Well, I will not say that. I don't say I don't care what they think. Again, I'm not a romantic. But if
3: you don't, if you care what they think, are you not the artist? Are you the designer accommodating what their needs are?
2: I'm not good at categories, you know? I, I think that basically the difference to me between an art practice and a design practice at times is the construction of a client relationship. You know, that's it's pretty simple on that level, a different level of problem solving. And also, I work with a lot of images in my work too, so it's not, you know, just type. I didn't come to this with a skill in design and trying to figure out what I wanted to be. I sort of took time off and thought, what does it mean to call myself an artist? Why do I want to do this? You know, unlike Shirley MacLaine, I don't think I'm coming back again. You know, how am I going to be engaged now? And how to bring the world into my work? I, I think about what goes on in the world. I think about how we are to one another, and I just my work is a creation of commentary about how we are to one another. And I just use what today is called a skill set to try to communicate that to people but I'm very aware of an audience, most artists I know are, you know it's not like we do something and we don't want people to see it. But very few artists are fortunate to have other people see it. What has changed now is with the professionalization of art. There's everyone goes to school who can afford it, and a, a BFA isn't enough. You have an MFA, and you have all this debt, and you come out. And most students, you know, like if they think they're really going to support themselves as an artist, that is few and far between you know and i think like the art world has changed hugely in the past 15 years and that um, that basically there used to be a collector class that collected because they loved work and that class still exists but with the collapse and destruction of a number of other financial bubbles you know the buying and selling in the secondary market around art is one of the few Um, existing bubbles right now and people are engaging it and they're speculating in work and it has changed a lot values are insane and art is bought and sold you know, very quickly it's bought through JPEG secondary market sales are checked out this is a huge change and it's a change that artists have to come to terms with they have to come to terms with when their work is unloaded as now an unwanted commodity because markets are fickle and they're, and they're driven by taste, preference, and profit, that they can't take that personally. I always see the art world as an anthropology, you know, and we're all, to some extent, players within that. But you have to objectify it to a certain degree if you at all think you're working critically or being resistant to it. I'm not located outside of it. My parents traded their labor for wages, you know, and that's where I come from, and I think that's where most people come from. So for students, it's a rude awakening. I teach in an incredible department of wonderful artists. I'll list the ones I can remember. Charlie Ray, Mary Kelly, Andrea Frazier, Larry Pittman, James Welling, Kathy Opie, well, my, there's, there's so many wonderful artists in, in my department and we always try to explain to young people who want to be artists that you really have to do this. There will always be commentary. There will always be art. It will exist whether, whether you become this hot figure for 20 minutes or not, you know. But I think it has to be looked at in that way, you know. One, more, one way I want to say sorry for the digression, but it's really not a digression. You know, it really is about what so much is about today. You know?
1: Hello. I had two questions, actually. First, if you'd be willing to take a moment after the show and I could give you a holiday card I made. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. He wants to give you a holiday card. Yes. You're, you've kind of been my idol for like eight years now. Oh, my God. <laughs> But I was wondering when you started to use red, black, and white, and why?
2: You know, when I first started using black and white, because I I couldn't afford to make color prints. You know, it was ridiculous. I made the black and white prints, and I would put them in red frames. And I didn't know who constructivists were. I didn't know any, I didn't, you know, whatever. I liked the way it looked. You know? And then I had to figure out a way how to get color into my work. So, I first I sort of silkscreened it, and then I worked with some acetate and stuff. It was only digitally that I could. But I've done a lot of installations. We didn't reproduce them like the ones at, uh, in, in uh, Glasgow yeah. at Goma. I've used green a lot also, you have to know. a lot of green, a lot of expansive white, black, and green installations also. So, you know, it's just whatever floats the boat. Like, whatever is working at the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hi. Um, So we talk a lot about sort of your approach to type, and especially with the subjects that you use, but I'm very interested in how your process is when you're choosing um, the photos and the images that you use um, and juxtapose with the type. So is it that certain images strike you, or is it that you think they'll be compatible to um, the space you use in conjunction with um, words and typography? What sort of approaches do you take with your photographs?
2: You know, it's sort of a sense of play, is that you sort of figure out what kind of meaning can be made from different combinations at times, and what might work. What could be productive for you and maybe the viewer? Again, I don't know uh, what people are going, what kind of meaning people are going to make totally. I can make assumptions because we live in certain cultures and have certain signposts that you know, suggest meanings and signifiers to us. But you know, it's just a combinatory effect. There's no recipe for sure. There's a lot of play involved, too, which is a pleasure also. You know, and because I'm a very installational prone artist, I, I like making my work, but also installing is really important and very pleasurable for me too, because of my real engagement with space and, and architecture. And again, one of the thrills of being in LA for such a long time is just living amongst that epic period of modernism between say 1917 and 1973 when these great buildings got built I should mention that too that that's been such an important part of my work you know
3: let's assume for a minute that Shirley MacLaine actually is right and you do come back and you had a whole nother lifetime to explore new things what might you be interested in
2: Oh, no, I can't
1: speak for that person. <laughs> well, Barbara, <Sorry. laughs> thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, it's and a Thank pleasure. you especially for your work. Thank you.